Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Fret Buzz the Podcast. My name is Aaron Suchik, and my co-host... I'm Joe McMurray. And today we have a special guest, Mr. Miles Harshman. Hello. Good morning. Hello. Hello. Good morning. How you doing, sir? I'm doing very good. Doing very good. Awesome. Today we're going to talk a little bit about um, some guitar tone and what that actually means once you actually get into the root of it. Um, whether that's pedals or whether that's amps or whether that's guitar or where all that comes from using, geez, all kinds of wiring and capacitors and resistors and what all that entails. So, yeah, today should be a really good episode. I know I've been wanting to talk to Miles for quite some time, and I'm very glad to have him on. I'm glad to be here. Glad to be here. Do you want to start with a little, like, how all three of us know each other? I don't know any of you guys. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm just lost. I wandered into this room yeah. completely on my own volition. So all three of us know each other from Bata Rock. Um, we all work there at the same time. Uh, I still work there, um, and these guys have moved on. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, we all we spent some some good times together at Bach to Rock. Um, but also, um, stemming off Cole Holland, uh, you also were a Berkeley attendee, were you not? Mm, yes, I was. So that's yes, kinda, I was. That was kind of cool. Uh, yeah. How, you did you graduated from Berkeley, correct? Mm-hmm. Nice. And you were doing jazz guitar mainly? Uh, not really. Um, I, I would probably say, because I don't have a, an, an ear training major at Berkeley somehow, oh. but I would probably say I did that. Oh. Um, like most of the classes that I took were all based around like ear training. Oh. And kind of playing guitar, kind of not. Like some of those classes, um, we would get our guitar in to play, but a lot of it was just like tons of singing, tons of listening. Mm-hmm. So, well, ultimately, what's your degree? My my degree is a degree in professional music. So, it it sounds a little maybe you know like what is that? But it's kind of just for like you get to make your own major. Um, and at Berkeley, a place like that, you've got so many things to learn. Not just that's required of you, but just like the option to learn so many things. Like, say you just wanted to do four years of like nothing but country guitar. Like right. mm-hmm. they, they've got all the classes to do nothing but that. Or say you wanted to do like, I did lots of Brazilian classes. Like I think it was probably like yeah, my second, second Bossa most Novas? frequent. Uh, like we're learning about Brazilian music. So like Bossa Nova's, the different styles, the Machiche and Afoche and Bahia and all that kind of different wow. styles within Brazil that, Brazil has kind of its own like unique musical history, kind of parallel to the United States. So there's there's a lot to study there. Um, That's sick. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So a lot of a lot of kind of like compositional stuff, and but but mostly ear training, lots of ear training. Yeah. That was usually seen as masochistic amongst my classmates <laughs> <laughs> because there there wasn't like ear training was required when you go there but only for, say, like two of your four years. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the same at George Mason. Right. So you can just, of course, elect to take more, and most people, like, hate it anyway, so they definitely don't. And there was probably, like, a group of maybe 30 or 40 of us that were all taking these extra ear training classes because we all loved it. And, like, 
is it was just kind of really fun to do. So we would all kind of see each other amongst these other classes. Um, and I'd probably say that we all probably were kind of doing the same thing, like just trying to soak up as much ear training as possible. So what, what about that appealed to you? Um, just to me, like watching other musicians, like um, I remember I had Tomo Fujita as a private lesson teacher for a little while. And I remember one day bringing in like a Johnny Guitar Watson song and I'm like, I told him, you know, I want to learn how to play this. And like we put it on and within seconds, he's starting to play along to the chords. Now, granted, it's maybe just a blues and that should be easy to hear or whatever. But I was just blown away by the fact that like within seconds, he knows what voicings to hit. Like everything sounds like perfect with a style. And, you know, he just... I just, I'm like, how do you know what these chords are? And he's like, I, just, I, I know, I, I just, I hear and I know. It's like, take your training seriously. And from that day, I absolutely did. So yeah. to me, it's just like, I find it, it's kind of like speaking a language. Like when you hear something, you want to be able to understand what it was. You don't just want it to be kind of like, you know, a phrase that you just keep repeating. It's, you start to hear, hear stuff. And I don't know, it is kind of like a little bug where all of us were, really into just kind of, you know, hearing chord progressions and trying to hear the tensions. And right. it's like a fun game in a way. Yeah. So you know, like the tests for uh, like harmonic ear training, we didn't have much writing to do, but like say the midterm or final would just be like eight chords, all half notes, all probably like five voicings at least. Um, and yeah, you've got like maybe a couple tries just to figure it out. You know? And they'd give you like the one chord at the beginning. Uh, yeah, I think yeah, we they'd she'd tell you the first chord, and then from there you got to figure everything else out. Oh, that sounds, so yeah, yeah, it does sound very useful. On musictheory.net, there's that they have yeah. a, a um, they have ear training where you can do just yeah, yeah. single notes yes. you can do intervals and then they do the like the full the chords. yeah the full chords and <laughs> yeah they <laughs> didn't we need to we need to add a few more to that cuz that would be like doing all of that stuff and yeah. then adding tensions to it and right. like mm-hmm. upper structure triads and yeah all that fun stuff i mean it would be incredibly useful incredibly useful if you're playing jazz and you would never get lost if you could. Yeah, hear it's just also like well. just in jazz when they throw in those cool chords, like just chord substitutions, like being able to hear those and knowing like what's going on when you hear one of those chords, like mm-hmm. oh, okay, they just you know it's a tritone substitution. Okay, mm-hmm. that's, that's why it sounds so cool when it goes chromatically, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, know? yeah. Just trying to be able to like hear that stuff by ear. That way, you're not always reliant on like someone writing down the music for you. You right. can just kind of go in and listen to it yourself. And as a teacher, you'd also be able to, you know, if a kid wants to play a song, it would make it easy. Yeah, that's usually, that's kind of how I like to te- teach my lessons, just because I think it's, it was an inspiring moment to me to see, like, Tomo Fujita just pull out these chords, like, out of nowhere. And so I kind of do that with some of my students where, you know, they'll, they might want to learn a song and... I you know, don't want to go to the internet just to look it up and it's just a handful of chords anyway to me. So I just listen to it and I just start playing along and they're like, Whoa, okay, this is really cool. And then I just write it down for them and go on to the next one. And because mm-hmm. to me, it's like a language, like, you know, you, you play a chord progression for me, you're giving me a certain 
set of information. And yeah, it's just, you know, it's kind of like, I guess here, I shouldn't say hearing theory because that's what it is, but like seeing colors, like once you can do it, you kind of can't turn it off. So like well, I want, always when I'm listening to music, it's almost like always an ear training exercise. Well, it seems like that goes hand in hand with your, yeah. your love of tone. Like we were introducing at the beginning you know, if you're if your hearing is that um, in tune or that honed in, it makes sense that you would care extra about the tone you're getting from your amp or your pedals or your guitar. Yeah. Um, they kind of so, go hand in hand. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a different. It's different, but just. Of course. Really listening, it does. You know, if you're playing guitar by yourself, you really hear the differences in tone sometimes i feel like with the band and the more pedals you put on it doesn't matter so much which guitar i'm using um but i guess you're playing are you do you ever play out or are you just teaching and working on Um, mostly teaching jamming most if i jam it's usually like funk okay that kind of thing that uh whatever is i guess you could call it jam bandy music festival music most that kind of funk stuff that everyone likes to dance to yeah i love it too yeah, we yeah. Actually, we had a bass player on uh, Randy Nicholas uh, a few weeks ago, and he's been touring with a band called Broccoli Samurai, and they've been opening for various jam bands like Pigeons playing ping pong, and um, we had a great discussion about jam band music and that sort of thing, which obviously I get excited about. Um, yeah. I'm glad you do too. Do you ever get into <laughs> <laughs> Wolfpack? They've got some good funk going on now. We were talking. No, about. Oh, you got to check them out. Speaking of jam bands, my dad was organizing his records and he's got like a few of those Grateful Dead albums. Mm-hmm. A couple of them in like pristine condition. Cool. I'm sure some Deadheads would be thrilled. Now, do you love Jerry Garcia's tone, or is that not your? Um, he wouldn't be say my my tone. Uh, my tone idol. I mean. I, I'm not sure. Maybe it's probably a cop out at this point in time. But Jimi Hendrix and hmm. mm, I guess kind of Stevie, uh, more Jimmy and right. Robin Trower. But I guess you know Robin Trower is like a huge Jimmy fan. If you listen to Jimmy and then you hear Robin, it's like, well, gosh, that dude's a fan. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't love a Univibe? So right. and Fuzz. So and if you look at my pedal board over here, I've got. Um, Four fuzzes, five, five fuzzes. Wow. <laughs> of, of one, two, three, that eight, that's six, well, 14 pedals, and one is a tuner, five are fuzzes. Wow. And they're all different fuzzes. Okay, so I don't have any fuzz. I have <laughs> two, different, two different overdrives, but. I have what, fuzz. <laughs> what, what, is, what is it about the fuzz? tones and why do you need five of them what's different between them uh well two of them are octave fuzzes so those are different beasts in themselves and one of those octave fuzzes really sounds like a a synth in a way okay um i mean it's really really gnarly um uh but definitely has kind of like some synth tone to it um one thing that people use fuzz for and i guess kind of jimmy did it and other people do it is where you have the fuzz cranked um, then you roll the volume knob back, 
Mm-hmm. And you get you get the much cleaner sound, and even almost like where it's clean, clean, mm-hmm. but it's still got some grit to it. Like that that tone is really hard to achieve without a fuzz face or fuzz circuit, and without you know an amp that's kind of running pretty hard. It's hard to make that kind of like light rock, or I don't even know how to describe it, other than it just sounds like you know a fuzz rolled down. Right. It's got that. It's got that magic. You can't get it anywhere else. Just like a little texture on your notes that. Yeah, I don't know. It's just clean. like whatever's going on. I mean, I know all this electronic stuff, and I still couldn't tell you what's going on inside. But I mean, something with impedance or whatever. But uh, yeah, just whatever happens when you turn that volume knob down, and the fuzz is still really cranked. It just it's a really inspiring tone. Well, what's different about that from like? So I, I recorded a song recently, and I I turned my Fender Princeton reverb up to like five or six and it it breaks up mm-hmm. very well naturally because it's not a big amp oh, i've got yeah. a 10 inch speaker in it and like a lot of times at a show i'll i'll crank my amp too if it's big enough room and i get a really nice you know there it's clean but there's some distortion when i some great yeah. chords especially depending on the volume knob why would you go for a fuzz pedal underneath that to get that sound as opposed to an amp doing that. Right. So, yeah, well, the texture of it is a little bit different. There's something about it that definitely seems like, uh, I guess, some of the bass is taken away. Hmm. And that kind of seems like maybe it might cut through a little bit more. Okay. Something about it, like, in a way seems thin, but not in, in like, a good way, not a bad way. Huh. So, that's my brownie telling at me. But, yeah, like, um, <laughs> just, just baking mid-show, yes. <laughs> the uh the well one thing that's also handy when you do that not just having that light drive is just the ability to turn that volume knob up and then have some gnarly fuzz on tap right there right mm-hmm. you know you don't have to go for a pedal um you can just kind of dial it in however you want mm-hmm. and so in that sense it's kind of like you've turned your guitar into this the distortion knob mm-hmm. so that's like that's i think that's pretty cool just having that that fuzz that's on tap is really cool. Like I know there's um, a song "Tender Surrender" by Steve Vai. I don't think he's using a fuzz face, but he is doing the volume knob thing. And if you watch that okay. video, as cheesy as it might be for the for that song "Tender Surrender," you can see him kind of as the song intensifies. He starts rolling that volume up more and more, and eventually it's all the way up, and it's you know gnarly and crazy, and yeah. Okay. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess usually because I'm trying to go for like a fuzz lead tone, I just want that ready. But also the ability to do my kind of light, crispy rock tones. So mm-hmm. yeah, you kind of get it all in one just with the fuzz face on and, and your volume knob down. So, so that, yeah, so I have five fuzzes. Okay, so I run just some, I'm comparing, I'm trying to work this out in my head, but I typically run like a, two different overdrives one's a tube screamer and one's a keely and sometimes if i want like my my go-to lead tone is you know one of those overdrives maybe a little bit of delay i've got reverb on my amp is you know what is the difference between the lead tone from a fuzz in the past like when i've used them in the past i've felt like it's it hasn't cut through the mix as well it doesn't have as much um doesn't have as much sustain as an overdrive me. Well, I was going to say, well, what fuzz are you using? Okay, fair. What I don't fuzz even are you using it's... and what pickups are you using? Because fuzzes, 
are pretty sensitive to the type of pickup you're using. Okay. So and back then I would have been the using output. single yeah, coil. Single coil. Okay, well that, that, that would be been good. back in the day, yeah. It would have been a good thing, but do you know what kind of fuzz? I I don't remember. I mean, I've used a big muff before. Um, that might be the only one I've ever really. The the spent big time muff with. is the one that's probably the hardest to use in a band context because it's got like the full frequency range being amplified and distorted and. Mm-hmm. In terms of a band, there it is, right there. Yeah, yeah. That that thing has got so much bass that, like, if it wasn't just like a rock trio, like you would have a hard time cutting through, just because the bass player, the organ player, someone, you just like it's just too much frequency. So yeah. I know, like, David Gilmore uses uh, an EQ pedal after his fuzz faces, uh-huh. so he can like trim i guess you know some of the bass off and give it maybe more of a mid hump or a mid scoop and right actually i think he uses like an eq in front and after in one of his peak cornish rigs or whatever but he's definitely trying to like get the fuzz tone but then still be able to like morph it with his eqs Hmm. to kind of cut through and that's the problem that some fuzzes have is that they're just too big that I guess in like a Jimi Hendrix kind of setting where it's like it's just a guitar and a bass and drums and you've got the guitar to fill up all that frequency, then mm-hmm. the fuzz kind of works because it just sounds so big. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like trying to, trying to do it in like say a funk situation, like you can't have it on all the time. So that's why I like to roll it back. So it's there. Have it if I need it. Mm-hmm. And if I need it, I have it. So yeah. And you couldn't just stomp it on when you were ready? Well, I mean, yeah, you could do that. I mean, if you want to go for, like, you know, just a tube scraper going through your amp. But for me, it's like having, you know, the fuzz tone is is much different than a tube screamer. The way it's touch sensitive and, I mean, I, I get lots of sustain maybe. I don't know what fuzz you were using, but get a better fuzz, I'll tell you that. Okay. <laughs> it should be it should be fun and it should sustain forever, especially if it's loud. It should almost feed back because it's 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 so loud. That's another thing about fuzzes that they tend to be really loud because they want to try and get your amp working a little bit as well. So, mm-hmm. and by that you mean you want to have your amp on the verge of breakup and then have yeah, where even push if it over. even if it's not on the verge of breakup, sometimes these fuzzes are so loud they can just make it break up anyway. Right. Just because the signal going in is so loud. Like usually when, when we put your amp on the edge of breakup, you're actually using that first stage to overdrive everything else. Mm-hmm. And if you just put a loud pedal into your amp when it's not breaking up, you'll actually hear that first stage and everything else overdrive after it. Hmm. So in a way you're like, when you, when you put your amp on the edge of breakup, you're kind of using that first stage as another booster in itself. So, but yeah, you are like losing your headroom and getting that, that gnarliness once you dig into it, which is kind of what you get with a fuzz, whether it's turned up or turned down, like the more you dig into it, the more it gives and you, you, you hold back and it holds back. And especially once you turn that volume knob down, it's just kind of got this weird jangliness and clearness and crispiness still that just sounds really good. Yeah, so let's go back to the, you were talking about first stage of breakup. Um, You're saying, is the first stage the pedal or the amps 
uh, tubes breaking. Oh, well, that's that's that depends on how you want it to work. Um, I mean, I would probably like I just built this amp, which is effectively like a JTM forty five and a JCM eight hundred. Um, okay. In, in one like box. Big Marshall. Yeah, just basically a big Marshall in a box with, mm-hmm. one, with a one twelve. Even though it looks like a Fender. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would probably on either channel always have a little bit of grit to it just because that's kind of the way it's been traditionally used. Mm. But the way we're traditionally using it is is getting that first stage in the amp to be breaking up. So our pickups are actually causing some distortion initially and then getting the pedal to, to add some more. Okay. I'm, just, I'm stoking all of this in right now. Um, the first stage... You're saying the signal's breaking up. The signal's breaking before up before it even gets to the amp. No, Just not before it gets to the amp. No, not from the pickups. So it's it's going from your pickups into that first stage, that first half of a tube. Okay, that, that's that, what you mean. It's after that stage is where your volume knob is, or your gain knob usually is on the amp. Yeah, like on a JTM forty-five, you're in a non-master volume JTM forty-five. That that volume knob is right after that first stage, and that's why it's effectively your gain knob. Okay. Because you're turning the volume up from that first stage into the rest of the amp. And then, okay. of course, as you go up, it distorts, and that's what naturally happens. But, yeah. Right. Using that first stage to get a little bit of crispiness is, I guess, kind of the way we originally did it. And I, I guess that was kind of just because of, you know, amps weren't loud enough, and... They wanted to be loud, so they turned them up all the way and then figured out, hey, this cool sound comes out when we turn it up all the way. Mm-hmm. But it only comes out when we turn it up all the way. So that was like another problem in itself. That's what it drives me crazy. People want to have these enormous amps. I'm like, why do you want such a big amp? You can't ever make it sound good. Well, you I mean, you can use a big amp if you just only use it as a that stereotype pedal platform. Mm-hmm. If you never use it, to break up at all, that it's just simply like a big hi-fi stereo system for your Helix, or if you go all the all the way with pedals, with you know, getting every bit of tone from that, and just using your amp as a make louder device, mm-hmm. then you then you need the headroom. I mean, I had a student who he was in a market for an amp, and I brought over my Hot Rod Deluxe just to show mm-hmm. him like what forty watts does, you know. Like it's loud. You don't get you don't yeah, you don't get to turn them up that much a guitar center and when you do, they all kinda look at you anyway. But Right. So <laughs> I wanted him to have the experience of just hearing like one of these amps in his own like house and how darn loud they are. Yeah. And of course he ends up getting um <laughs> not not just a, a two power tube amp, but a four power tube amp. Yeah, a Mesa Heartbreaker. Mm-hmm. Which is like kind of what I built, but like plus like two more amps inside. But it's got four power tubes. It's it's ginormous. It's got two two speakers, just like that twin behind Aaron. I don't know if you can see that twin, but that twin behind Aaron is the backbreaker of the music world, <laughs> or in front of Aaron. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He got a backbreaker amp, and he's got that- heavy. It is really heavy. I've carried that one. Yeah, yeah. He's probably got a hernia from it or something. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's freaking huge. Yeah, his amps is, is of similar weight. And 
Yeah. But it's, he's got he's got the power to like put you know. I told him if if you want to use modeling stuff, if you want to get or like I think he used his iPad for some of that like online stuff or whatever. I can't remember what it's called, but if you want to use that, I told him like you need a really loud amp. That way you're hearing just it and not the amp giving up. Why would you not want your amp's flavor added in there? Well, I mean, if the amp has just a boring flavor. Oh. So, so for example, that twin we're talking amp, about. Yeah, or, I mean, but that twin we're talking about, you know, that amp would be the perfect pedal platform because it just gets super, super, super loud. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it clean it. And clean, and it doesn't distort. And, I mean, you can pull that knob or whatever, but it's just super, super clean. And so whatever you put into that will just be however loud you want it to be. And say if, you know, you got that, like, that Friedman BEOD drive that, like, everyone everyone loves, and that's your distortion tone, you probably wouldn't want, say, that crispiness of, you know, a Fender being added to that. That might not necessarily be the best thing. Right. Even though, you know, Fender, Fender Distortion has its place, it's just not, it doesn't have its place in that tone. So that's kind of why you'd probably want an amp with such high headroom. Just as a, make, as a make louder device. I, I totally get the clean headroom for, for like a, a jazz setting or certain things like that. Like you really, I can't even use my Princeton with a, a live jazz band a lot of times, if, especially if it's outside. Oh, yeah, but, definitely. Unless it's I mean, uh, fusion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're trying to get distortion, yeah. But, uh, you know, the bet, uh, the times when I played my old hot rod outside and was able to turn up or at a big club, I mean, like I played at the, the Howard theater once in or twice in DC, but like those big rooms or outdoors, when you turn it up, like there's just nothing even close that I've ever gotten from just a pedal. Like yeah, when that the amps start just start sounding in way better as you turn them up. Yeah, and it's it's there's it's no like pedal this, that can get close. It's kind of like just really the speaker and everything that, that really works. Like half your amp really is the speaker. Um, you change that speaker, and boy, does your amp really change. Oh yeah. And to me, I think like when you turn amps up like that, that all that mojo you're really hearing is like the cab and the speaker really doing their work, huh. moving all that air past you. I think that that sound pressure is really kind of key to how you perceive the tone. Huh. And so, yeah, like no pedal, no matter what, you know, you plug it into whatever tiny amp. If it ain't loud, if it doesn't have the power, it's not going to sound like that. I don't know how far up that volume knob on a Hot Rod Deluxe you got, but yeah, it does sound really good, you know, even on just the clean channel. Because yeah. it, does, it doesn't distort that much, but it just kind of sounds, you know, richer. Yeah, it's it's Fuller. a warm, warm, full sound. All those stereotypical words we use. It, yeah, it's like, oh, this is what we're talking about when we talk about like warm and tubey and mm-hmm. good. This is what I had to do: make my ear, ears bleed. Yeah, right. You <laughs> you really can't understand until you've used an amp and turned it up a tube amp. A tube yeah, amp. you can't understand what people are talking about i so i i had a my hot rod actually got melted at a gig that i played about a year and a half ago nice they had a power surge and oh. anybody out there uh oh. get your own surge protector <laughs> get a brown get a brown box whatever that thing is yeah. i know that's a like surge protector i think i mean Ouch. you can get 
like there are a lot of different surge protectors out there. I highly recommend them. Um, yeah, yeah. it melted melted my whole PA, uh, melted my amp, but the amp was fixable. They had to put a new power. They just they went in and fixed it, but new it power three, tubes. Uh, not tubes. It was the uh, transformer. Oh. Power transformer. Oh. Yeah, but oh. Fender actually fixed it under okay. warranty. Nice. Um, nice. It took three months, which cost okay. me. Not, not a lot of money. <laughs> I ended up buying a um, it was a Roland JC40 because I just had a fascination with the old JC120 because of jazz tones and everyone says yeah. it's crystal clear and it is that. But I started gigging with it and just immediately noticed the difference in my lead stuff. Like jazz sounded good, especially through a hollow body or a semi hollow, mm-hmm. but yeah. like my rock stuff, uh, it was just not the same. What Not are you using for a lead tone? I was using a, a Keeley um, Red Dirt Germanium and a Tube Screamer. Just, you know, I alternate. But, I mean, the JC40 was sterile. It was very sterile sounding in yeah, comparison see, that, to the that would, Fender amps. That would be a perfect amp where, like, you know, your Tube Screamers are meant to be used in a certain way where that amp is just not going to do what you want, what you expect it to do, and then have the tube screamer behave in the according manner. Yeah. Because there, I mean, I bet probably, it probably sounded best with just trying to get all your distortion from the tube screamer and turn the volume down. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't hitting the amp hard, because, yeah, I'm sure that JC40, if that tube screamer was hard, was not sounding... Yeah, just... Probably to... still, like, bitey or something. Right. It's just... Thin didn't have the sustain, didn't have the thickness in the lead tones. It's right. it's really hard to describe, but really, I it was great for me as I've been playing guitar for a long time at this point to go back to a solid state after years of not having one oh. to reappreciate a tube amp. And I ended up selling the JC40, and I got this uh, Fender Princeton, which I just like. I'm head over heels for this amp because it's Is it's it a so reissue? warm. Yeah, it's a 68 reissue. That, that, that reissue, nice. It's a little nice. bassier than the 65, but you can just turn your, you can just turn the EQs yeah. down and it's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually just played uh, a Quilter amp the ah. first time. So and that, those look really nice. That kind of blew me away because uh, it's, it's no tubes. Um, hmm. But so I was showing Aaron a picture of the amp I was playing next to it. Yeah. And that that little quilter was sitting next to that Ampeg V4, Aaron. Right. I was playing an Ampeg V4, which is this huge, huge guitar bass amp that's like the predecessor to the uh, Ampeg SVT, which is another huge amp. Um, but this tiny, tiny little, what was it? I think, I think it had two eight-inch speakers in it. And it was 200 watts. Okay. And holy crap. Was, it was definitely 200 watts. I mean, there he's holding up a picture of that, that big half stack. Yeah, yeah. And just past it, you may, maybe can see that tiny amp hiding behind it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the quilter. And that was just as loud. This guy right here? Little guy. Okay. Or the, well, on the... No, no, no. In between those two. Oh, that, the tiny guy. Yes. Yes. 
I didn't the even see that one. there. <laughs> that o- that other big amp is a Lab Series. I actually didn't even get a chance to plug into that because that's kind of a famous solid-state amp. But huh. I saw this quilter there, and I was like, hold up. A lot of noise has been made about these quilters. Yeah, They seem to have all these really kind of neat features. Um, so, yeah, I kind of had to plug in and check one out. And it 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 sounds very, very, very good. But there is something to solid state amps that and I, I think i have it pinned down where like have you ever played uh a guitar through a bass amp i've never done that i never had okay. a bass amp yeah or you never um, you ever did that at boxer rock or you just plug yeah, yeah. a guitar into the just because yeah, yeah. you don't have an amp or something like right, that right. and the feel of it is very different not just because it's got no treble or whatever but right. like when you pick those notes, it's got a different feel to it. And part of that is down to the power section. Um, Cause it's the, for a bass amp, it needs to have the ability to amplify those huge frequencies. So it right. needs tons of power and reserve to do so. And that has a specific feel um, that I think all solid state amps have. I mean, I'm, this might be in my head. I might be making this up, but to me, like, even though this amp sounded great, like if you weren't playing it, you would think maybe this is a tube amp. Like it sounded very, very good, but it had this kind of like immediacy to the bass response where like, no matter uh. what it's got, like it's always there in a way. Whereas if you turn up your Princeton, you know, even though it's probably like distorting, you kind of feel it give in a little bit to some of those notes Yeah, because it's, as that note amplifies, it's drawing power from the power section, and that's actually like lowering the volume in a sense. So there's kind of like this give and take relationship happening inside your Princeton. But the way we make the solid state amp work is that that power section's so stiff, we call it, that it won't ever give in. It's always got enough power to amplify the next bass note and always give every note the fullest amount of oomph possible. Right. And I and I think that's kind of the thing in a solid state amp. I kind of noticed the same thing in like those um what's the the new boss not the, the next not the katanas, the blues cube. Oh yeah. Kind uh, of in the katanas, but in the blues cube as well. Um where like yeah, the, the crunchy tones, the blues tones, you know, it all sounds good, but it's the way that it feels that I think really kind of gives it that authenticity that I'm sure Kemper was, like, trying to go for. It's right. like you you can feel how the amp kind of gives up in your playing and reacts to your playing. Mm-hmm. And I think you kind of can't design that out of a solid-state amp, I think. I think like I'm pretty sure that you can't take that stiffness out to allow it to kind of give up because the transistors just don't work like tubes in that sense. So it's kind of like this own the tube amp is its own magical happy accident for guitar tone. Yeah, I I completely know what you're talking about with the give. I it's so hard to explain. I think you did a pretty pretty good job of it, but. You got to try it, everybody out there, if you haven't been using a tube amp. Yeah, I think no matter who you are, you definitely need to, I mean, for the beginners out there, you you definitely need to be able to grab a tube amp and then A, B it against a solid state. They're just It's like a rite of passage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's a rite of passage. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's night and day. It's, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. You have to be able to play something in order to feel yeah. it. So, you know, if you're just starting, you won't notice a difference probably. But I mean, you yeah. might if you really turn it up and just hit a big D chord. Yeah. But, but they, really, they both have their place. I'll say that, you know, tube amps are uh, analog. They're, they're great. But at the same time, solid state amps, they have their place. Yeah, I mean, that's why the Polytone Brute got so famous among jazz guitarists is that they like that that immediacy to the bass. And they also just like not having to replace tubes. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, right. so, so if yeah. you're carrying it around a lot to little clubs. Yeah. It's easier on the back. <laughs> solid states are way lighter. Yeah, yeah that they'll save your back definitely. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, I tried to carry my Hot Rod Deluxe to a gig once in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, hold on, I'll get there. <laughs> yeah, hold on. Forty-five hold, pounds. Hold on, I'll have dead arms by the time I get to the gig. <laughs> right. But um, if you did it often, you wouldn't have to get a gym membership or anything. You just right? stay in shape. Yeah. Your obliques would be very strong at on one side. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I actually, for like most of my time in Boston, gigged with my microcube. Okay. Um, That's a Yeah. And every, I would always get a look from the, the sound guy of just like, what the hell did you bring? Like, right, right. No one's going to hear you, dude. And then I'd, I'd hand them a, a quarter-inch cable, and I'm like, direct in, dude. Like, yeah. what up? Yeah. And then they'd be like, "Oh, oh, this is amazing!" Like, okay, right now, I, I, yeah, I won't have to t- worry about turning them down, or mm-hmm. the whole band can hear them. I can throw them in the mix. So, yeah, yeah it was kind of great in that sense, very handy. But it did look a little silly because, like, it was this <laughs> tiny little square at the corner, hiding be- <laughs> hiding behind your beer glass, yeah. Yeah. Be- <laughs> being overcome by guitar cables. Yeah, is that guy even playing through anything? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, he just got like cables coming out. Like, I don't understand. Like, yeah, the funniest sometimes in Virginia Beach on the boardwalk, you'll see people busking out at the oceanfront, and you'll see these guys with like. Sometimes the little tiny one on their hip. Oh, uh, yeah. Like, it's like five inches by five inches. Yeah. Those little <laughs> honey tone, Dan Electro um, honey tone ones. Yeah. I think it's like a little Marshall, but it, they're oh, terrible yeah. sounding. Oh, oh yes, yeah. of course. Yeah. <laughs> terrible. I think I, I think I saw a video of someone plugging in like 50 of those things. <laughs> and, and no, I've a, seen that. I've seen that. And like A being it against a real like, like half stack. Yeah. Yeah. So like a yeah one fifty watt Marshall against fifty one watt Marshalls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. Funny, funny as ever. Yeah, it sounded fifty times as terrible. <laughs> Gosh. So um, I'm going to kind of go way back, um, actually to the very beginning, because uh, coming from Berkeley and ear training to modding pedals and guitars and amps how did you get started in the whole because i mean i remember it when we were in classes you brought your guitar in and all of a sudden you were like i'm gonna make this into like 50 different switches and you were putting like yeah well, constantly and i was like holy cow like i didn't even know you could do that much to a guitar in terms of tone just the guitar itself mm-hmm. yeah it really started with um i built my first guitar in high school which was like a, a strat 
Um, I guess I kind of tried to build it after the Lenny Strat, um, Steve Ravon's Lenny Strat. Mm. Um, that had varying degrees of success, but that was like my first foray into making it or assembling a guitar. And then at college, I had acquired all the parts to, let me see if I can flip the camera around, this guy right here. Mm-hmm. So I, for the longest time, I had the parts to this, and I just never had the time or the desire to put it together because um, in my strap, it was just like your simple strap wiring. But in this one, I wanted to add piezo pickups. So that has its own LR bags craziness inside it. And then, um, yeah, I had gotten into all those switches that I put into my strat. So right. that kind of, yeah, it all kind of snowballed that one weekend. And getting really into just figuring out how to do my guitar properly mm-hmm. kind of led me towards everything else. Okay. So it started on the guitar, just adding those switches Mostly just like, you know, tone caps or whatever, or I can't remember what else I put in there. Oh, yeah, like series parallel switches and stuff. Right. That's, yeah, definitely one thing I, do, I like doing to my guitars. Um, but then, yeah, it's just kind of the beginning of figuring out kind of, I guess, electronics. And it was just kind of a, a real curiosity. Like I learned, I learned that. So I said, well, let's just, let's learn something else. Like that was, that was pretty easy. Just connecting a few wires and switches and, Okay, yeah. so for like a, a beginner's, a beginner's kind of dive into. So there's, we have like phase inversion and coil tapping, and I mean we have a whole bunch of things that we can actually do. In your words, how would you explain all of that? Um, you're just kind of re reordering the parts inside your guitar is basically what you're doing, um, or at least. Your pickups, that's what you're doing in terms of like phase reversal and series parallel. You're just changing where your pickups are kind of lined up in your, in your signal chain. Um, and so, yeah, I know Jimmy, Jimmy Page has his own famous wiring scheme, which is crazy. Mm. But it's basically just like, I, um, if I get this right, he's got a coil tap for each pickup. Um, a phase, uh, not phase or phase reversal on one of them, and I think he can do inside outside coils. Like there's a bunch of, with humbuckers, it gets really crazy with the combinations that you can do because a humbucker is essentially just two single coil pickups put next to each other and, and wired a specific way. Right. Um, the way we usually understand a humbucker. Um, but once you separate those wires and you get uh, what we call four conductor wire on your pickups, that gives you all the possibilities to, to wire anything you want. So if you wanted to wire just the front two coils from your pickups together, you could do that. You could do just the outside coils or the inside coils. I know some PRSs do some crazy thing with like outside coil, inside coil, and then, you know, something else and so this has a different tone to it yeah so what you're doing with series in parallel is um you're connecting i guess oh i gotta kind of sit down for this 
you're connecting the pickup like this. So you got one pickup going into the other pickup and then, you know, you have your in and your out. Mm -hmm. But when you connect them in parallel, you're actually connecting them like two separate pickups. So it's kind of like you have two single coils right next to each other. Mm -hmm. And there's something special happening even with that where if you have a Stratocaster and you know that position two and four, you have two pickups that are not just reverse polarity from each other, but reverse wind from each other. And that's how the humbucker is made is that they have both or the poles are sitting on either side of a magnet. And then these two windings are wound opposite of each other and then wired to kind of hold hands. So you come in one side through one, go to the other side and then out the other side. Mm. And that's your standard what we call series wiring. And this is what you usually hear. Once you kind of split it this way, things do start to sound more like a single coil. Um, but because you have two single coils next to each other and because they have that phase relationship, it's kind of like a position two, but because they're so close together, it, it changes that kind of scoopiness to it. I don't know how to describe that position two and four. If you if you play a strat out there, you know what we're talking about. That that position two and four, it's like it's like a miniature version of that when you go to parallel. So you get definitely get some unique tones. If you like fuzzes, um humbuckers tend to be too loud or have too much output for a fuzz. So if you go to parallel, you get the single coil tones, but it's also phase cancelled. So you don't get any of the noise but you get all the nice feel from the single coils. So in that sense, it's, it's very handy and definitely why I put it on my Les Paul. Right. So I could get those tones out of my two humbuckers. I don't know how long it was before I realized that humbuckers were called humbuckers cause they <laughs> bucked the hum. Yep. I heard I, something happened and it clicked and I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, think, I, think, I think that happens with everyone. We're like, <laughs> Oh, it's a compound word. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I, yeah. I just thought it was a cool word, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I always wondered what we were bucking. <laughs> if it had been like hum canceling, it would have been more obvious, but bucking is not a word yeah, I, I guess usually could, use. Because, I mean, it was invented back in like what, the 40s or 30s right. or old Seth Lover. I should know more. But yeah. So, do you normally play that telly? Is that your um, go-to? Kind of. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of go back and forth between my, my Telecaster and my uh, my Les Paul. Um, I have three guitars. I have a, the my Warmoth Strat, uh, my Warmoth Tele that I just showed you, and then I have a Gibson Les Paul Studio. Okay. Um, I probably play this one more just because it's my prettiest one that I've built. Um. I kind of, I mean, I don't know. A, a Les Paul is is kind of a special thing. I mean, for the, I mean, it kind of has a love hate relationship amongst everyone. Where you know, it's uncomfortable as hell to sit with, but they sound great. Like right. they sound really, really good. So it's kind of like a trade off, I guess. And that's kind of why I wanted to mod the hell out of it, so I can at least have something fun to do with it when I pick it up, and am trying to not let it fall off my lap or kill my shoulders it's like oh at least i got single coil tones here i don't need to take off this heavy guitar got it right here right 
Yeah, they are. Les Pauls are a, a stack of wood. That's for sure. Yeah, mine is um mine. I it's the studio, so it's all mahogany, and I think I weighed it once, and it was nine point four pounds. Mm. Well, my my three thirty five is nearly that that much too. Yeah, it's got that big wooden block yeah, going through it. Yeah, whenever I put on a strat, I'm like, oh, this is so comfortable. Yeah, my my strat is also chambered, and this thing, this telly is a uh, is a hollow body. Oh. It's, it's a thin line, so definitely saving myself on the weight. Yeah. Both of my both of my fender copies are are kind of neck heavy in that sense. Now that chambered, uh, the thin line. It, I mean, I love the sound of semi hollow bodies, but why would why would somebody want a thin line telly over a a solid telly? I mean, does it well, really get a thicker well, tone and is that what uh, you want well, if you're playing a telly well i first let me just say that i didn't even know this when i got it um the fr- my, i don't have a picture of my my first strap my first strap had a, an f hole in it oh um, uh, that's cool that, it's that like, was, uh, paul gilbert was, used to have something like it, that with his exactly like so um <laughs> exactly so, looked so when cool. i first started playing guitar um i got that i've been in a starter kit and you got that dvd with Paul Gilbert showing you, you know, how to do stuff on it. Yep. How and, to shred and how and, to chainsaw cut a guitar in half. Right. So, yeah. So, of course, he was, he, yep. he was playing like the Ibanez guitar you got. But, of course, they include some extra stuff on the DVD. And so he's playing his guitar and it's got those F-holes on it. And I think that looks like badass as hell. So, Warm Off, one of the options they have on some of their bodies is to just install an F-hole. And my strat is chambered, but it's not hollow. So, like, the F hole is just routed out for the F. Like, you stick your finger in there, it doesn't go anywhere. It's just a little chamber, so when they put that top on, it makes an F hole. So mm-hmm. that's kind of why I got that F hole on that one. Because I thought, well, Paul Gilbert, he's kind of, you know, one of the reasons I liked guitar so much early on. So got to pay tribute to him. And so this thin line... I didn't really think about as much the fact that it's a, a hollow body guitar. Um, I kind of thought that, well, I'm just saving myself on weight for the fact that it's cut out and it would probably add some other kind of mid rangey stuff, but I didn't think too much about the tone of a thin line in making this. I probably should have, but cause now this thing is mid punchy as hell. You know, it's got Karina and Wenge, and it's hollow. And that, like, that's just a recipe for mid punch all the way. I don't need a clon. I just need this guitar. Right. Do you think that with your strat having that F hole that doesn't actually go anywhere, are you actually losing on losing out on some tone because you don't have a solid piece of wood vibrating? Well, so that well, that whole piece of wood is chambered. Um, like they do less Pauls now. So that's, that's an argument in itself, whether if you think chambering actually adds resonance or takes it away, because right. you are taking away material, and that's that idea that, well, if there's no material to vibrate in, then it must be dead. But then the other thinking is that, well, you have this cavity for the sound to kind of bounce around in, or this extra kind of hole inside the wood to kind of resonate. So, I mean, my... I like the sound of my Strat. I mean, it's mahogany, so it definitely sounds different in itself. But to me, I think I wouldn't say that cutting the wood out makes it worse. 
in terms of sound. It, like to me, it doesn't take anything away. It's just simply changing how it works. Because if you think about it, like what's an acoustic guitar? It's a huge hollow. You know, the, the sound's meant to bounce around inside and, and resonate before it's, you know, sent back out. And I think that's kind of the same idea behind the thin line, that yeah. you just let some of that sound resonate inside and you get some of the different tones coming through the pickups. Yeah. But you don't have to, I mean, I'm, I use a 335, so I, like, I love semi-hollow guitars, but I, I don't know a whole lot about the chambering. And I mean, the that's F, the that, semi-hollow guitar. I mean, mine's got, I mean, it's got the block through the center, but it's got hollow wings. I mean, I can yeah. I look think, in I there. Can't, I can't remember what the model is that's totally hollow, but there is that's a model. The, like the that, Epiphone Casino is like that. The No, but I think there's like um, a Gibson like 330 something like, it might be a 330 hmm. or maybe that's just a small version. Um, but I know there is a Gibson that is just like a 335, except it has no center block. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I know Epiphone makes one, but I think Gibson made one before they bought Epiphone. Um, yeah, the the Beatles and, used that Epi- Epiphone Casino. Yeah, just have a lot think, more acoustic sound than the. I think it was Grant Green that had the one I'm thinking of. Oh yeah, he had he played like a like a 335, but I think it it had P90s, and I also think it was completely hollow. Okay. Because that 335 thing was actually them catering to the rock players by putting that piece of wood in there. So it wouldn't feed back so much. Yeah, so it wouldn't feed back as much. Because um, it's also kind of like the concept behind, uh, I can't remember what's Les Paul's name for it, the block or the, have you seen his, his first guitar? No. You got to look it up. Les Paul, it's like one of the first guitars he's built and it's like three Massive chunks of wood kind of haphazardly thrown together. Um, and yeah, one of his like first kind of, I guess, experimentations with guitars and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think even, uh, yeah, I think it's like a prototype even for the Les Paul, like where that shape kind of comes from. Hmm. But you look at it and it's like three hideous pieces of wood put together. <laughs> I, I, no, I think it's called the log. The log. I'm looking up think, right now. Yeah, type in Les Paul the log. I think that's what it's called. I see something that doesn't look too terrible, but it, yeah, that's gotta be it. I mean, it kind of looks like a, it lo- yeah, it definitely looks like it works. Got no yeah. Venetian cutaway, but it looks a lot like most arch tops to me. Three different pieces of wood for sure. Yeah. And it's like got that piece going through the middle. Uh huh. That I think yeah, it looks part- literally like your mailbox. <laughs> four by four <laughs> running through the middle yeah yeah wow yeah wow. the log <laughs> that's great i was actually up in new york city last week and i was telling aaron about this earlier i got to go to uh rudy's music in soho and they had uh they had this room upstairs with all arch top jazz guitars and somewhere in a glass case they had like they were like thirty thousand dollars for some of them. They were beautiful Gibsons and D'Angelicos oh, yeah. and some were yeah. played by famous players, but uh I got I got to play some of the Gibsons and Eastmans on the wall and there's nothing like a hollow body for for yeah. just I mean, they're just tone monsters. 
They're such thick, woody tones. Yeah, it definitely seems more woody when you play a hollow body. Like, I yeah. don't know. You would think that, yeah, taking away wood would not be woody, but... Right, right. <laughs> yeah, it makes you want to play clean when you have... I mean, I since I got my 335, I... There are songs I used to take, you know, turn the overdrive on for solos, and it's like, man, I, it just sounds so good, clean, that I, it makes you want to not use effects. Right. When you have a crappy guitar, it's not... It doesn't matter so much. Turn on the distortion, but... uh. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah my my students call distortion electric it doesn't sound like electric i want it to sound like electric <laughs> <laughs> yeah like, oh i guess we have to have a little tone lesson now right right this is called this is overdrive yep mm-hmm. yep absolutely this is delay yeah once you start getting into effects and all kind of i mean that just changes the conversation i know for me when i started out it was like as soon as you start finding out about effects and choruses and all delays and verbs and it was just like oh okay i want to dive fully into all of this stuff and i went through years of that but i think i did a little bit of an overkill because um after all of that i i, I kind of said okay well I don't know who I was listening to, whether it was, you know, Paul Gilbert or one of these guys. And it was, it was along the lines of tone and this idea of getting rid of all of your effects because it really ultimately tone comes out of your fingers and your guitar and your amp. Right. Uh, and the more that you start incorporating effects, uh, you start taking away from that. Uh, so I went with this minimalistic kind of approach where I went down to only just one or two pedals, even if that, um, cause that's really, and I try to get all my, you know, I understand the, the want and the need for the electric sound. <laughs> yeah. I want to sound more electric. Right. And I get that. I, I totally understand that, but ultimately you're just covering up, um, you know, your, 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 your tone and what, what's really coming out of your fingers. Um, that's yeah. really what, what players need to be focusing on is, you know, all the mistakes and all the flubs that you're actually making, uh, that way you can kind of. Um, craft your tone that way when you do start incorporating all of these cool effects that you're doing it properly yeah for four years at Berkeley I didn't ever once think about my amp or even my guitar actually it was kind of uh, an afterthought for everyone because I mean everyone comes from like a different financial background so having like a fancy guitar or not fancy guitar it's kind of like you know like oh, that's just chance or whatever right so no one was really worried that much like oh he's got like a better guitar than me that's gonna make him better because if anything it was like well if you got a better guitar than me you better be better than me. <laughs> that's so, right like like you, you spent the you spent the time to accumulate the money let's see if you spent the time to accumulate the skill right um and so if anything like you didn't want to be seen with a nice guitar <laughs> i know i mean this thing is weird enough in itself i know it gets stopped all the time but i mean like yeah, you'd you'd feel terrible like holding a PRS and like wanking next to a guy who is has a squire and he's going through the you know all giant steps and you know right. making making you look like a noob or whatever you know it's just <laughs> you don't think about it at all because it's just like the instrument you have and so yeah you're just kind of like focused on nothing else but the music and then after I left Berkeley is when I'm like oh. A tube screamer. Right. Mm -hmm. 
there's a use for that. It's not just <laughs> yeah. Like before I went to Berkeley, like I mean, one the whole this whole pedal mania that we have now, or not mania, but like heaven. You know, there wasn't like all these people making it. I, I went to s- school in two thousand eight um, or seven, and mm-hmm. like I think Keeley. I had a Keeley Wah then, and I think I only knew of like full tone. And I had seen some analog man stuff because my private lesson teacher had, uh, I can't remember what, but it had like one of those sun things on it. So I knew that was familiar, but like none of this stuff was like really, you know, a mainstream or whatever. And no, like after I leave Berkeley, it was just like this explosion of like, now everyone makes a tube screamer. There's like more tube screamers than there are freaking strat copies. Like it's it's crazy. Yeah. Um and which would have been kinda cool had we been there, but everyone was just kind of more focused on like, you know, just am I playing the right notes? Right. I think Plus that's how it's sorry, everyone was also just plugged into a hot rod deluxe. Mm-hmm. And this was just another problem about Berkeley in itself is that they in every room they had hot rod deluxes. Same equipment um, everywhere you go. Yes. So for like that class of just six guitarists in that room that's just barely big enough to fit six <laughs> guitarists, that room is lined with hot rod deluxes. Oh my <laughs> gosh. And that's what everyone has to plug into. So everyone is just constantly like trying to find that lowest spot on the volume where it just turns on. Right. Because even that was like too loud for a classroom setting. So like... If anything, the tone that we were worried about was just simply not being too loud. We didn't want to be that guitarist that was like, even if you're good, you don't want to be like the ice pick in the room. Like, right. Yeah. You know, so that was that was our tonal quest was just simply how low on this volume knob can I go? <laughs> <laughs> and, right. I can st- and it still sounds somewhat good and audible. And, right. Right. Yeah. Right. Like that was our that was our tone quest to Berkeley. Yeah. What's that? What's that game you do at, at like tropical resorts when you go into the bar? The you have to walk under it. You lean back. Oh, like what's l- it called? Limbo. 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 It's the tonal yeah. limbo. Yes, it is <laughs> tonal limbo. It was crazy. <laughs> like, and then some some rooms would randomly have like a, a line six flex tone. Some oh. random some random line six that was like they're already just crazy enough to operate and. Mm. Like you turn the thing on, you have no idea what amp model it's going, and it's running at like full bore, and like you're that guy that turned on the line six, so you just immediately turn it off, and you're like, okay, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll take the hot rod deluxe, or, right. or gosh, sometimes they were even Devils. Now that I remember it, like, oh, yeah, so it was good. like, it was like, come on, Fender, like they had a, some partnership where they would supply all the amps. Oh, right, right. Um, but it was just like, why would you not get the Blues Junior? Right. <laughs> like, I just, I don't understand. Like, so many Hot Rod Deluxes everywhere. It's absurd. Like, <laughs> nobody needs that. Just maybe for the stages. And even then, all the stages they have are really tiny for recitals. Like, Blues Junior would probably be fine. Right. But goodness, like a hot rod Deville in like a room that's like I don't know, fifteen <laughs> by fifteen. Nick, what the hell? Uh, well, I do think it's great that in school you you really do need to focus on your note selection and choice. And I, I was talking to Aaron earlier again about this 
New York City trip and I was reminiscing about back in like, I think it was 2016, I, I played a show in the Lower East Side uh, with one of my old bands and afterwards we just were walking around the village and we saw a chalkboard outside on the sidewalk saying that Mike Stern was playing. And uh, for all of you out there that don't know Mike Stern, he's an incredible jazz guitarist, jazz fusion guitarist. He played with Miles Davis in the 80s. I mean, he's, well, he's played with done a lot of people. cool stuff. Yeah. And uh, we saw him play and he was using a little bit of overdrive and some delay. And uh, he's actually actually using a Telecaster or this Yamaha say, yeah. Pacifica. He's like a, one of those Telecaster people. Yeah, and you know, in school, it's all clean. We we had been studying a lot of bebop and a lot of you know, you get into maybe some Pat Metheny kind of stuff, but nothing with real like any overdrive hardly. And uh, I remember getting to talk to him that night, and he was like, "Oh yeah, man, you gotta you know use use your overdrive, use everything you've got, make it sound cool." And yeah. uh, I really took it to heart. And when I left school, I, I've I used light. I'll use light tube screamer on my, um, like in some jazz tunes, especially more fusiony kind of things. And it really does use sparingly. It sounds really good. And uh, I actually got to see Mike again last week at the Iridium in New York City, and he was playing with uh, amazing trumpeter Randy Brecker and uh, bass player Tom Kennedy. But he does. He he really. It's inspiring to see someone playing jazz with you know effects effects but in a very it's it's a it's a tasteful way to do it mm. i think you you do have to go clean for a period to to be able to bring that back tastefully bring yeah, it I mean, back tastefully at berkeley i mean i didn't even practice with an amp i had that little micro cube but i mean you got roommates or whatever and just uh, that thing was probably put away somewhere just to be convenient. But yeah, I think for four years I didn't really practice with an amp at all. Oh, oh, wait, who was your roommate, Miles? And that is where we're going to end it for this week. You'll find out the answer next week when you tune into episode 31 with Miles Harshman talking all about mods on the guitar, amps, and more. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe. We've got a lot of cool things coming up in the future. Uh, This being 2019, I'm going to try to get a couple of new things done for Fret Buzz, the podcast. Um, So stay tuned. We'll see you next Thursday for episode 32, part two with Miles Harshman, all about guitar mods, amps, and more. All of it here on Fret Buzz, the podcast.